Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta per social distancing protocols. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. Today's topic is, should I make social impact investments? And you know, the topic of social impact investing is not necessarily new, but I do think it's receiving more attention, certainly in the coronavirus environment, but I think also, I think also in the last 10 years as, as, um, as models for promoting social welfare in government and through the, the foundation nonprofit sector are being challenged. I think also business models for investing are being challenged. I think also, I think business models for, for charitable or or socially oriented organizations are being are being challenged. It's it's becoming harder to not want to say harder, but pe- but there's a lot more there are a lot more questions that are being asked about whether you know organizations that take in money, process money, and then allocate it, donate it, is really the right model. And I don't think that that's going away anytime soon. But I, I think that there's a lot of, of, of interest in the potential for a force multiplier when you add an investment dynamic into promoting social practices. And I, I actually saw a lot of this when I worked in the, in the former Soviet Union shortly after the fall of the Berlin Wall. It's amazing. It's almost 90 years, almost 30 years ago now. But even back then, what, what funding organizations wanted to wanted to hear if you were trying to raise money was what is the sustainability model? And they wanted to hear because, you know, no, no, it, it's, it, even back then it was hard to sell a, a, a nonprofit model or a, a social, a social product model that says, you know, we, we need you to give us money so that we can give other people money. And then we're going to come back to you next year for more money so we can give more people money. Um, that, that is even back then, that is a tough, that's a tough model to sell. And it's of course a tough model to sustain because you're, you're basically always fundraising at that point. And so, you know, this, this notion of social impact investing, where, where you harness the tremendous power of capitalism. And I'm by no means one of these guys that think capitalism is perfect and doesn't need tweaking, adjusting, et cetera. But there's no denying that, that, that capitalism has delivered the goods, if you will, in, in a lot of ways um, to, to pretty much everybody on the planet that has allowed capitalism to, to function. Um, and, and so it's, it's only natural that we kind of look at, well, how, how can capitalism that has been so effective at driving 
uh, at driving innovation, for example, um, and has been effective for the most part at driving, incre- you know, persistent increases in standard of living. Um, you know, how can we harness that for, for social impact as well? And, and so, you know, it's, it, it's a very, it's a very interesting model. And you also hear this, you also hear these, um, these terms of something called a double bottom line or a triple bottom line where, uh, you know, investments are judged not purely on the financial return, although a financial return is required or you're not sustainable, but also they're looking at what is, you know, what is the, the social impact? What is the environmental impact, both from an ecological and, and an economic standpoint? And, and so, you know, that, that sort of, that, that sort of is, is, is out there. And I think it's a really interesting topic. And I, again, I think with the coronavirus pandemic, I think it takes on a certain additional importance that um, uh, maybe it did not have uh, heretofore. So we are very fortunate to have um, Mark Crosswell, who is joining us today, who is uh, Managing Director of Social Impact Strategy of the Go ATL Fund at Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. Mark leads the Community Foundation Social Impact Initiative designed to accelerate the pace of social innovation in Atlanta by connecting capital to causes we care about. With a background in banking, corporate finance, and M&A, Mark is an entrepreneur at heart and has started, invested in, and managed numerous businesses. We're going to talk about that. In 2015, he joined Points of Light to lead strategy and venture development for the Civic Accelerator, which trains, scales, and invests in innovative social ventures around the country. With passions for youth development, education, and the environment, Mark has been active in the nonprofit community in Atlanta for decades. In his spare time, Mark enjoys backpacking, trail running, biking, skiing, fishing, and coaching youth sports. Mark graduated from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Mark, thank you for coming on the program. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate the chance to join you. So before we really dive into this, you're, you're also involved in the Georgia Social Impact Collaborative, and I want to make sure that we don't that we met, we, we, we have an opportunity for you to talk about that and educate our listeners on it. What, what is the Georgia social impact collaborative and uh, why is it so important to you? Yeah, well, even before I joined the community foundation and, and launched uh, our impact investing work, uh, we realized that um, Georgia, just like many of the States in the South is lacking in capacity for for impact capital or creative uh, capital that's focused on social outcomes. So a group of us, a number of leaders um, from various sectors, launched um, what we call GSIG, the Georgia Social Impact Collaborative, as a way to connect and educate uh, stakeholders of all kinds. We work with investors from private sector, philanthropy, uh, public sector, um, uh, as well as uh, social entrepreneurs and um, accelerators and incubators, um, and all the stakeholders are trying to drive capital to uh, social causes. So it's been it worked for four years, and it's been important for uh, developing the ecosystem for impact investing. So tell us about the community community foundation and why it wanted to get into impact investing. I uh, yeah, happy to. Um, you pointed out in your commentary, Mike, that um, impact investing has been an increasing trend for the past 10 plus years. And that's absolutely true. In fact, it's been double digit. Um, community foundations tend to be um, uh, some of the more critical 
uh, ecosystem level support organizations for nonprofit communities in, in place-based settings. And Community Foundation for Atlanta, Greater Atlanta is the same. Been around for 70 years. We have a billion two in, in donor capital that we manage. And then we we uh, grant about 120 to $140 million a year to, to Metro Atlanta area nonprofits. They, the leader of the foundation then, Alicia Phillip and the board, had decided that we needed to do um, something different and needed to bring in a different kind of um, product if we really wanted to scale the philanthropy we were already putting to work. So we launched into the uh, impact investing work as the as the first stage of that. So let's and then let's drill down a little bit further. So you're uh, you're managing the Go ATL fund, and I think you also founded it. Correct. That's correct. So what's the origin story? What's the origin story? How did, how did, how did that idea come to you and how did, how did you go from idea to making it a reality? So I had, I had been working in um, social venture acceleration for two or three years with, um, with the national nonprofit uh, and helped run venture development for, um, for an accelerator program. Uh, that was distinctly focused on civic and, and social outcomes. In that process, we developed an impact fund that was really focused on on um, uh, early stage investment in those early stage ventures. Um, that pilot fund kind of led me into understanding, okay, this is really what it takes to get new types of creative capital into these ventures. A lot of times just can't find the money. Uh, so when... Um, I was in conversations with the community foundation. They also determined, okay, there's a real need here. And with the capacity that the foundation has, it made a lot of sense to use them as a, as an anchor institution uh, to launch this. Cause it's really the first impact debt fund in, uh, in Georgia. So they brought me on board in 2017. We spent a year building the concept um, on how we wanted to invest capital. And then we launched the go ATL fund in 2018. So in your own origin story, there's, there's something that I find fascinating that I'd like to explore with you if you're willing. And that is, you know, you started out in investment banking and I've been in investment banking as well. Um, and, you know, investment banking, I think, I think it's fair to say is one of those fields that looks like on the surface, it's about as far away as you can think of from going into community development and even socially, you know, impactful investing. And I would love to hear, and I think our audience would love to hear, how is it that you got from, from there investment banking to here with the go ATL fund? Mm, Yeah, it's, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think you pointed it out in your early commentary. We were talking about the intersection of the business challenges and the and the social challenges, uh, and nonprofits, you know, by nature are just unsustainable. Uh, so a lot of of I guess my emergence into this world came from the fact that I was very involved with nonprofits in my after hours and volunteered a lot on boards and and with organizations that were doing some great things, but they're having to fundraise every day. And then on the business side, I was in the M&A business and um, in the lending business and then, you know, invested equity capital in 
my own ventures. Um, and, you know, it just came to realize over time that th there are certain business practices that nonprofits could really benefit from if they could uh, infuse them into it. So I, I think the other thing I found is in the nonprofit sector, you don't tend to have a lot of the talents and skills that would lead into um, an investment type um, vehicle like this. So I just happen to have a little bit of both. And there are a lot of people out there like that. And that's a growing trend. So just that whole intersection between business uh, and nonprofit um, comes together in a lot of ways, not just in capital, but in, in skills, I guess. And I was fortunate to be in the middle of it. So the, the structure of, of, of Go, T, Go ATL fund is, is something that's called a, a, an impact debt fund. You know, can, tell our listeners what that actually means and, and how is that different from other kind of funding structures? Sure. The, so our impact fund is, uh, and there are a lot of them around the country, there just aren't many of them in the South, is we are a private debt fund, um, very similar to other private debt funds you might see on the market. Uh, some of them focused on, you know, early stage and, and more um, growth stage and some, you know, on capacity and, and larger organizations. So our debt fund, we, we, lend, we lend money. So we're essentially taking capital that lends, them into, lends it into um, organizations that can pay it back over time, typically four to seven years. Uh, we get an interest rate that's um, relatively low. It's um, in the 2 to 4% range. Um, but what is most unique about it and, and, and the real difference is that we're focused on the social outcomes. So our money is designed specifically for a purpose. So it's to build affordable housing or healthcare clinics or charter schools and underperforming districts. Uh, and then we're specifically looking for uh, the impacts that, that our borrowers get from that. So in other words, how many kids are taught in those schools, how many uh, patients are put through the clinics and so forth. So how do you, how do you measure, I'm, I'm curious, you know, cause I, I've been on the boards of, of nonprofits and I've done, I've worked in nonprofit like work. And in fact, something not too dissimilar from what you're, what you're doing. How, how do you kind of collect that data and measure? What are the mechanics? Is it, is it something that the funding recipients are, are required to do from a reporting perspective? Do you help them? Do you, do you have independent audits? How, how do you go about collecting that data so that you can show your own capital providers that you're having, you're making that desired impact and simply tracking your own performance? Yeah, I, and that, that is truly one of the biggest challenges in this business um, and one that's still being uh, sort of resolved by investors like myself. But the main, the main here's if just to put it into a real uh, tangible context, we, so we're lending money. So think about a promissory note and a uh, security agreement, much that you would see come from a bank. Only ours, while it covers some of the nuts and bolts that those do, it includes things like, okay, we want to know the number of affordable housing units that are built. We want to know the average income of the tenants in those, in those units. Um, we also, you know, if we're lending for small business development, we want to know the demographics of those borrowers. So we're actually, they have to report that to us, just like they report their financial statements to us. Um, and so over that five-year loan period, we can actually see what, uh, what we've created and, and, and what we've produced over that period. 
so you know that 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 I'm I'm fascinated by housing. Not that I'm a real estate guy at all. I'm not even very good, very good at monopoly. But you know, as I've been studying, as I've been studying us, uh, um, you know, social causes. You know, real estate, real estate is is so important, and it's not it's not just about not having a job. You can't pay rent, um, and I want to I want to focus on this with you for a second because I'm I'm really interested. I don't know if anybody else is interested in the answer to this question, but I am for sure. And that is that you know the real estate problem is one that for which money is only a partial solution, right? Um, my understanding of of affordable housing is that the barriers are as much around zoning and and simply neighborhoods that don't want. Um, low-income housing, um, and I'm just going to leave it there, even though I can get on my soapbox about it. You know, for mm-hmm. for 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 questions for for issues like that, where you make an investment into affordable housing, does your organization also have the the opportunity to help overcome some of the non-financial barriers, um, such as zoning, such as I guess political clout, if you will, or at least influence? where you can help reduce some of those other, those non-financial barriers as well. Yeah, I, I think you get, you get to some things that are, that are really critical, especially as it pertains to housing because of the enormous amount of investment and resources it takes to, to be successful there. So I'll point out a couple of things. You know, nonprofits um, can't lobby and have limited, I would say, direct political influence. However, I would say that there is substantial influence um, in partners and others that can create a real movement in the public sector. Um, And so we spend a lot of time with that because it's critical. From our standpoint on the affordable housing side, we especially lean on um, some some policy-oriented nonprofits we do, do business with, and they're very good at understanding the intricacies of that because you're exactly right. When it comes to housing, You've got very ultra local challenges like you know zoning and um, um, and issues with you know, NPUs, and then you've got uh, county, uh, you know, state, uh, federal, all kinds of regs that overlap, and it's just very complex. So the policy uh, factor is really important. The other one that I think is is just one that we're really focused on more than ever right now is those systemic racial issues that have forced some of the, uh, you know, the the neighborhood, uh, uh, you know, disparities that we found in in society, especially in cities like Atlanta. So to break that down, it's really taking a change in the way people think. So it's all, this is all the non-capital stuff. Um, And so there's a great deal of effort around that. And a lot of uh, people working to, to make sure that we, you know, create some just uh, um, uh, differences in, in what, what has happened in the past. So as you conceptualized GoATL Fund, were there other, were there other initiatives or models that you thought about and ultimately discarded? And if so, why was it that GoATL Fund kind of rose to the top of the other ideas that you, you, you were considering? Yeah, good good question. And and to give this this uh, answerable context, I'll describe more carefully where we invest. So 
we we uh, we launched the fund with 10 million from the community foundation. So we were seated with 10 million in essentially equity capital. Um, and then we've had our donors invest since then. They've added a couple of million and pretty soon we'll be up to about 14 million in, in size in the fund. Uh, because it's not a great deal of capital and because we are relatively lean and, and small team, we invest in intermediaries. Um, these are community development banks, uh, typically which are nonprofit uh, banks pr- uh, providing affordable housing financing and, and, and loans for charter schools and all that. Um, in order for us to be effective, we needed to leverage the power of those intermediaries. So our kind of investing is really effective because what happens is we can take that, you know, our partners can take that half a million or a million dollars we invest and then they can multiply that, uh, you know, sometimes five, tenfold to bring in other capital from much larger investors to get large projects done. So the products we looked at that we did didn't make sense, given our capacity and our experience, were things like venture capital and um true early stage venture investing. Um, we didn't think we could invest equity effectively, um, especially if we we're going to invest in some nonprofits, which you really can't evaluate from an equity standpoint. Um, and then from a um, leverage standpoint, we had such little capacity, it made a lot of sense for us to make sure we could leverage that money in the, in the market. So in other words, bring some other other private capital in to, to drive the um productivity of our investment. So, th- so that's interesting. I, I I did not get this from my research. So, in effect, is it fair to say that you guys are the Go ATL fund is in effect a fund of funds? It it is in a lot of ways. You know, we do invest in direct in some cases, um, but in others, we will invest into a portfolio of, of loans or projects that an organization has. And if you think about housing, so we have two very different housing investments that um, offer a contrast. One is an investment in the largest multifamily uh, lender in, in in our state. That's a that's a community development bank. Uh, they have a relatively large eighty to one hundred million dollar portfolio. We invest about a million dollars specifically in Metro Atlanta, and so our goal there is to try to lower their cost of overall borrowing. So they can drive better affordability overall. In contrast to that, we also invest in a developer that is associated with a community development bank. And that development entity is actually going in and buying vacant and blighted uh, homes in in neighborhoods that uh, need investment. And then rehabbing those and then selling them to first-time homeowners with with, uh, buy-down assistance from uh, grants, and that so that that money is really effective on a place-based um, area in the way of home home ownership. Uh, so very different investments, but um, just ways that we invest both direct and through intermediaries. Now I'm 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 curious. I'm I'm going way off the script here, but I I, I know you can I know you can handle it. But I, I um are any of these investments made to your knowledge, maybe alongside of other programs. And, and to be specific, what I'm thinking about is, you know, the, the SBA, um, the SBA has certain programs that are designed also, it is designed to be a double bottom line um, 
program, the Small Business Administration. We've had a podcast on small business business administration lending. And I guess my 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 curiosity is that um, do you find that either in your direct investments or through the the through the organizations that you support, do they ever work with either uh, other government agencies or even other perhaps other private funding sources? Um, to to achieve their goals and 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 um, create some kind of financial leverage. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, you bring up the SBA. So one of our first investments was in a, a local community development bank called Access to Capital for Entrepreneurs. Oh, sure. Known as ACE. So ACE is a big SBA lender, and our original investment was into their community advantage. SBA program. So it's where SBA provides a guarantee specifically for loans or for minority and immigrant um, and low income uh, business owners. So we put about a million and a quarter capital into that. What's interesting is, is we're also pretty flexible in that, you know, when COVID hit, when the pandemic hit, um, the need for that kind of product um, just wasn't very relevant. So we actually redirected that commitment so they could use that money for COVID recovery. Um, so, so that's one example. Another interesting one is, is we just launched a relatively small micro lending program through a, a nonprofit or a nonprofit lender called Lift Lift Fund out of Texas, and they've been in Georgia for about four years. Uh, we launched this for, for specifically for COVID recovery, and they're going to lend zero percent interest loans with our interest bearing money. And the way they can do that is they also used our money to incent foundations to come in with grant capital to lie beside that. So there's a 25% uh, grant that goes along with that investment that is being used both for the interest buy down and loan loss reserve, if that makes sense. So, so yep. foundations specifically put grant money in so that we can leverage our investment capital. Um, so I want to s- switch a little bit to, uh, to, to governance here because, you know, um, governance of anything like this is, uh, I imagine is, is different and challenging. But my, my first question is this, is that because you, be, you know, because you operate like a, as a fund of funds in effect, but, the, the people to whom you are accountable might be a little bit different. Is, is there a, is there a financial accountability or how does the, how does the financial accountability work to say community foundation that put in the first 10 million and then your donors who have also become investors? How does, how does that accountability regime look like? And is that materially different from other accountability regimes that you've been um, that you've had to address in your for-profit roles? Uh, interesting question. Um, as, so we, we're just uh, three years old. So when we launched, there was really no roadmap for how we would develop um, compliance and accountability. And, you know, the auditors at the foundation don't even know what to do with us, frankly. Um, but nonetheless, we created uh, a a, a sidecar running kind of process where we basically have others in the foundation that are helping us keep up with the accounting of, um, of the fund, as well as the information 
uh, say the reporting we get back from investment partners. So there's a compliance effort that much, looks a lot like what you would see in a bank for a loan fund. Um, and we're doing that because we know that we're going to have to create a, um, a track record and be, and, and it really just adds integrity to the, the whole fund model. And then in terms of our um, reporting to investors, I would say our reporting to our donor investors, as well as the foundation, looks a lot like the investor relations you'd see coming from a very small public company or uh, from a, a private investment fund. Um, we provide quarterly updates on the portfolio. We, we discuss specifically the activity. We also tell them if it's in good standing or not, and it, and it, and it happens to be. Um, so we've never had an issue with payment. But, um, you know, so it's we report on specifically what you'd expect to see in any loan fund. So um, a question I'd love to get your input on is, is this and that, you know, I've read data all over the place that, that there's a, a finite, a definable trade-off between social impact investing and profitability or return, actually, but more, more properly. And I've also seen some literature that suggests that socially – that that socially oriented investing actually generates a higher return um, than a more conventional investment regime, and and I'm 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 very I'm, I'm particularly piqued. Uh, my interest is particularly piqued by the fact you're doing this micro lending because everything I've read about micro lending programs suggests they they have a, a, a fantastic track record of success, both financially and and socially. So it's a long preamble to the short question, which is you know. Where do you fall? Do you fall? Do, do you find that there is a, a trade-off between social impact investing in terms of return financially, uh, or in fact, do they tend to work in tandem? That that you don't necessarily have to have that trade-off. What, what's your view on that? Uh, yeah. Well, this is. Uh, I think this is a really important distinction because you see that a lot. You know. Um, especially in the institutional side of uh, impact investing, where they'll say, okay, you don't need to make a trade-off in order to make returns. So th- that is true. I believe that that exists in the, in the institution, the market rate side of impact investing. But the reality is the investor themselves, and in my case, you know, our GoATL fund, typically have the ability and always should make um, the effort to draw a distinction right up front. What are the values? What are you trying to achieve with your investments? Um, and so there are cases where you choose, okay, returns, financial returns are just as important to me or more important than social outcomes, in which case you can often design around uh, not providing a trade-off for that. However, funds like mine specifically make an intentional decision we want the trade-offs. We are choosing to be an impact-first fund. We want to see the social outcomes produced that we're intending to, to invest in. And we also would like to get a, a return on our capital and make sure we get that capital back. But we're willing to give up, number one, on the return. So we're willing to take a lower interest rate. And number two, we know that the sustainability has always been questioned in these areas that we're investing in. If we really want to create that sustainability, we have to assume some risk. And so that risk may be at a higher level than what the uh, what the institutional investor is willing to provide. So 
it's it's intentionality, Mike. It really is. It's not. Um, it, it's not. You know, you can go in the market and choose one or the other, but if you're an if you're really a, a strategic investor, you're choosing up front what your path is. So I want to explore that a little bit further too. Is it is it? It's it seems to me, and you you tell me if I'm wrong. This is pure speculation on my part. But another another potential benefit of an investing model versus a grant model is I suspect that that imposes a different kind of discipline in terms of deciding which projects to fund, how to, how to fund them, the degree to which you're going to fund them. You know, you thinking like an investor, I mean, even if you are making a social impact, I, I imagine that there's just a different thought process in terms of, of how you evaluate potential investment opportunities. Is, is that fair? Uh, yeah, it's exactly accurate um, in a couple of ways. Number one, if you think about how you invest um, capital or you lend money, you're going to do specific kind of due diligence around all the financial aspects. Um, we do that same due diligence that you, you would find a bank doing if you were applying for, for a loan. On top of that, we also do due diligence around the social outcomes. So we want to see the history of what they've produced, how they've done it. We want to see, you know, what are the projections around what they'll produce with our capital? It, you know, what, how many homes will they build with it? How many families will they house? How many kids educated? We want to know that up front. Um, and then in terms of the actual uh, re- return on the capital, you know, there's discipline built in there because they have to do that in a way that they would um, – provide uh, reporting to a bank or to any other investor. So there's, there's disciplines up and down. Um, and then how we evaluate uh, those outcomes, there's, there's also an advantage um, from the investment standpoint. And that we've, you talked about accountability before. We can be accountable because we're keeping up with a great deal of data on, on the investments we make. But I don't want to discount the value of philanthropy because um, as you noted, there are advantages to impact investing. Number one, it's a great deal more capital typically put at, put at work than, than philanthropy. Um, number two, you are getting the money back so you can invest it again. Um, and then number three, because you're driving uh, you know, those outcomes into the future, you're building sustainability with those investments. But a lot of times, impact investing never happens without philanthropy. So it often is the bridge that creates opportunities for number one, the nonprofit target to get off the ground in the first place. Um, and number two, the ability to really take our capital and leverage it in different degrees. Like I, I pointed out with the micro lending fund. I, I'm, I'm curious also as you, and I, I, I want to come, I want to come to a question about how you raise the initial funding before we get to that. I want to like to ask, you know, do you find also that maybe it's easier to raise money from certain parties for an investment fund because for a social investment fund, because ideologically it's just going to sound, it's just going to sound better to a certain audience, right? I think that there are, this is my own view and I'd love you to, to react to it, but I think that there are people that are, are happy to write a check to say the United way. They don't have an investment model as far as I'm aware. You know, it's purely a, a grant-based um, model. Um, 
and then there are people that that have more of a that that have that want to see capitalism kind of more central to the way that that social problems are addressed and therefore even though there may even be no expectation of getting the money back necessarily <clears throat> but they just it just sort of sounds better to their ear that they're putting money into an investment fund as opposed to writing a blank check mm-hmm. am i off base there or is there something to that uh, no, I, I, I think you're, I think you're right. Um, some of this gets back into the intersection we talked about before between business and nonprofit. But I think the, the other thing is, is this: when we're going to raise capital, we're making justifications to the, to the investor, much like any other private fund would do. Plus, we're talking about the outcomes we're going to produce from that. But, but here, herein, it really gets down to how well you align with that investor. Um, but I think the traditional way of doing it, as you know, is you you go to work, you make your money, you know, you build up your retirement. Um, and eventually when you get to a certain maturity in, in that stage, you begin to spin off a little bit of that into philanthropy. What I think we're seeing now and what really makes a huge difference is that people are thinking about that those social outcomes much sooner than they used to in the past to where it makes a difference, you know, if they're drinking clean water and breathing clean air or, you know, having to drive through parts of town that they're just not proud of. There's just a difference, especially with our younger generations, where it makes a big, big difference um, in how they put their money to work. And it could be even just where you deposit your, your, you know, your checking account um, and thinking about uh, that as a factor in, in driving some social change. But I just think, it, aligning investor interest with the investment product is so critical. Um, and we spend a lot of time on that because the education is long and hard. Um, but when it comes down to it, when you go to raise money, you've got to justify yourself. But you want to make sure that you're lined up well in terms of um, what those investors are looking for. So an observation I have is that um – one th- one feature that a nonprofit organization, a social venture fund, or any venture fund have in common is that raising that initial seed capital is is quite difficult. And I th- I'm sure that any of our listeners that that have an interest in pursuing like this would love to hear your story about how did you what what was can you tell us a little bit about the story about how you secured the initial capital to, to launch the go ATL fund. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, thanks. Cause that was a, that was a, a critical component. Uh, I mean, just to get the concept underway, there had to be a real commitment of budget to, um, for the startup. So bringing me on, uh, allowing me to have really a full year to, to do the discovery and the research and the build of the, of the product. Um, and then through that year, once we had that startup budget in place, we had to then, okay, go back to that same investor that provided the startup money, which was the foundation, and essentially talk them into investing $10 million in seed money. The good news is I only had one investor to sell. Um, the tough news is this was dramatically different than anything that foundation had done in its 70-year history. Um However, we had the, you know, the, um, uh, the, the leadership team behind us. We had the board behind us. Um, and it just, uh, it just fell into place. 
since then, you know, we have six or 700 donors that we, uh, we take the fund out to. To date, we've only, um, I think we've got between 25 and 30 investors. So that's gone a little bit slower. But I think the reality is the more our donors realize, okay, I can put this capital to work, get a return, and continue to make grants, then we'll have more success with that, that fundraising. We're talking with Mark Crosswell of the uh, Go ATL Fund, and uh, the, the topic is should I um, should I practice social impact investing? And um, we're, we're running low on time here, but a, 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 what I'd love to to ask you here is, you know, what have you learned along the way with the Go ATL Fund? You know, what what has worked in terms of successfully achieving your mission and, and what hasn't worked that somebody else, you know, might be a cautionary tale for somebody else pursuing this. Uh, yeah, well, we've, we've been fortunate in that most of our investments have turned out to be very successful. Um, I would say we've been, we feel very, uh, very good about our investments in affordable housing and the fact that, um, we are moving the needle slightly there. Um, in small business development, I would say the same is true. I would say we have found it more difficult in some other areas, such as education uh, and uh, and healthcare specifically. And it has nothing to do with um, the fact that th- there's a substantial amount of need in both of those areas. It has a lot to do with how ready the market is for this kind of capital. Um, and in that respect, we need partners and intermediaries and uh, strong intervention partners, you know, nonprofits that are actually doing the work in order to help us find uh, investable kind of, kind of uh, entities on the other end. So that some of these markets are taking longer to, um, to develop from that standpoint. I would say the other big thing that we've learned is that, you know, we think we're, we've, so in less than three years, we've invested almost all of our capital. We'll have nearly 11 million invested um, in the next couple of months. So we're about out of money. So we realize there's a constraint capital wise. We have to scale. If we're going to continue the success at this rate, we can't be a 10 or $15 million fund. We need to be a 50, 75, $100 million fund. So we're looking very closely at next year and the years beyond in terms of really taking this thing to a whole different level. Um. You, you know, it, and it, it it strikes me. I think there's a lot of things there that are that are consistent with uh, with other with other nonprofits. You know that that initial funding that initial funding is 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 of course very difficult as we just talked about. But also, you know, when I've I've been linked at least to the nonprofit world, either directly or indirectly, the the the, the a theme that 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 has been there and continues to become more prominent is, is partnerships is um, you know, it's increasingly difficult in any capacity to raise money for sort of a cowboy fund, if you will. And, and you really only see those happen. I think, you know, by the Arthur blanks and the Bernie Marcus of the world and so forth that, you know, can just go it alone because they, they can write their own check. But my impression is that, you know, what you're talking about in terms of finding the right partner, that that's now becoming, I think, almost necessary best practices for the success 
not just of your fund, but really any philanthropic exercise of, uh, of any scale. Um, do you agree with that? Uh, ab- absolutely. There's no way to do it without partners. Uh, and, the, and the first thing I'll say there is that if you're operating in the impact investing world, which is very close with the, the nonprofit world, it's extremely collaborative. So there's not a sense of competition. Uh, there's a lot of complementary type investing and, and strategy work that goes together. Um, and so, you know, it's very easy to do business in this, in this market. You, nobody turns down your phone call um, and you're willing to see just about everybody. Um, and then in terms of actually using the partners back and forth, uh, we do a great job, I think, of, of leveraging that. I think looking at how we build the capacity of our partners is critical. We're not just interested in growing our fund, but if we don't see our investment partners and our intermediary partners grow in the same same way, then we don't think we're getting anywhere because we can't do it alone. So it's it's absolutely critical. And the good news is just it's a very collaborative environment. So I'm curious, you know, how, how is your how is your private sector experience helped and informed you in this journey that you've been on to create and now run and we hope scale the Go ATL fund? Well, I think um, I think that that's a big part of it from a standpoint that um, I, I like you, Mike. I'm a capitalist, um, but also understand there are flaws there. Um, as we have seen the world change and there be a higher demand from consumers and, uh, you know, from businesses. And, uh, and then of course the, those that are providing um, resources to nonprofits are realizing that, you know, sustainability is not going to happen, which is grant capital. Um, it's just become more and more um, meaningful. I think to understand both the business side, which I had in my private sector, and how that can really play a part in driving that sustainability in the nonprofit side. Um, and the good news is, you know, it's, um, it's got positives for both. Um, I think there are people that are making more money uh, who were in the low income or, you know, impoverished kind of uh, areas of the spectrum. And then there are investors that are realizing, okay, we can actually make something good happen here and get our money back. Uh, so it's just, you know, it's been telling the story around that, as you can imagine, is not very easy sometimes. So having the private sector experience and being able to couple that with understanding the nonprofit sector has been very fortunate for me. Mark, this has been a great conversation. We're, 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 we're touching only the, probably the surface of what we could touch certainly, but you know, time, time is of course is limited and we need to, we need to get you back to uh, helping people get housing because um, that, that's really important. If, if people have an interest, if our listeners have an interest in exploring building something like this for themselves or maybe participating or supporting what you're, what you're doing, um, how can they contact you for more information? Uh, yeah, thanks, Mike. Uh, the, the easiest way is by email. Uh, it's mcrosswell at uh, cfgreateratlanta.org. Uh, that that domain cfgreateratlanta.org is also our website, and you can go find uh, GoATL information on the fund. And then uh, Twitter is at ATL Impact, so uh, at ATL Impact, um, 
is how we, we use uh, the social channels. And uh, Georgia Social Impact Collaborative is, is gasocialimpact.com. And that's where you can pick up uh, general information on impact investing. Well, thank you. Um, that's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Mark Crosswell so much for joining us and sharing his expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next executive decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake, our sponsor is Bradyware and Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.